Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm co-producer Leo Garcia, joined as always by TV Awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're going to be talking to Seth Myers of Late Night with Seth Myers, but also we're going to be advocating for some things in the comedy and variety talk space. I mean, yeah. you guys will be advocating. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to spend like a good portion of our like 15 minutes on breeders. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. We're not doing a clicker, except I'm going to yeah. say, except I have to say, this, this, I found this funny. Uh, NBC yesterday canceled Manifest, which was the number one show, show or movie on Netflix over the weekend. So just goes to show you that popularity on Netflix doesn't equal the current Continuing network that owns to be made. <laughs> the network I, that actually owns the rights to you. Uh, honestly, yes. I hope it's I hope it's kind of the inverse relationship where NBC saw it on Netflix ranking that high and they're like, that's it. Final straw. You're done. I can't just be a content provider for Netflix my whole life. We're our own network. We were here first. So we were going to we're going to spend this time as opposed to talking about the biggest news items for this past week. Instead, talking about some shows that we think deserve to be in the conversation for awards. So voting is opening today. So let's talk about comedy. Uh, as I mentioned before, we're going to be advocating for some things that maybe uh, are a little under the radar or need a little a little push reminder to voters, listeners. Ben, do you want to start with a show or do you want to start with a person? Uh, I would love to start with both. Um, this is, I think Leo did a great job. I think he did a great job framing uh, how we're going about this. Uh, whenever I get two in the weeds with Emmy conversations, I like to remind readers and or listeners, uh, but really myself, that the reason we get so invested in this is because it is a good time to kind of resurface things that may have gotten lost. Um, so you can take these as a general recommendation for you to go watch them. They're all available. They're all out there. Um, uh, it's always good to get good TV recommendations uh, because there's just so much of it. And even if it seems like it came out 10 years ago, like a few of these that I'm going to mention, they're fairly new. So uh, maybe they just fell under the radar for you. And now is the time for you to pick them up uh, like a, a very good show that may or may not come up later in the conversation with Seth Meyers called AP Bio. Uh, I don't know how Leo cut down our interview, but <laughs> AP Bio was probably uh, the number one thing that I wanted to talk to Seth about, even though he's only involved as an executive producer. Um, AP Bio really grew into an exciting comedy when it moved to Peacock this year, or I should say, in, I think it was September 2020 when it premiered. Um, and I've always had kind of a soft spot for the show because it is uh, just a very kind of enjoyable relatable uh right on that good line of kind of like a dark sense of humor while still being mostly uplifting and positive um and for anybody who's forgotten this show originated on nbc it stars glenn howerton as a kind of disgraced harvard professor who uh ends up substituting in an ap bio class in his in his uh, small i think ohio small town or ho small ohio hometown um, and he doesn't like it. So he decides to use his time in the classroom uh, to exact revenge on certain people who've wronged him throughout his life, which is just a delightful 
uh, starting point for any show, I think. Um, but they really, they've, they've kind of found a nice sweet spot between uh, like Jack Griffin, uh, Glenn Howard's character, learning from the kids and kind of growing within this little community that he's stumbled into uh, and the kids kind of adopting his uh, more, more malicious attitude toward the world. Uh, which is yeah. just feels appropriate. It felt especially appropriate in 2020. It, it still feels appropriate in 2021. Um, so I, I can't recommend that show enough. Uh, I would absolutely push for for comedy series. I would absolutely push for uh, Glenn Howard and to get lead and lead actor in a comedy series. But if there's a shot for anybody on the cast to really get nominated, it feels like it could be Paul Appel. Uh, who not only had a great turn in AP Bio, but many more people have been paying attention to Girls 5 Eva, which uh, is also a comedy that is on Peacock, which is fine. Uh, and she's fantastic in it. So I would definitely, definitely support anybody checking out as much Paul Appel as possible. Uh, but please, if you've seen Girls 5 Eva, if you've already binged through that thing um, and you just want a little bit more of, of this comedy genius ap bio is not a waste of time it does some really wild shit in season three that you can just start with if you really prefer to so um that's my first recommendation you know i'm gonna go the same route as ben um i have a show that i have been stumping for for what feels like forever but a lot of people have um yet it hasn't it it made inroads during its first season into the award scene in ways that I think people didn't anticipate. That is Hulu's Pen15. This is just a very funny show that has a lot of heart in it. It has uh, Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle in the two central roles in which they play 13-year-old versions of themselves uh, while surrounded by actors and actresses of the same age. It shouldn't work whatsoever and without naming names i'll say that there is another series out there right now that demonstrates how much pen 15 shouldn't work but it's set in 2000 and i think that's a really that's a really a boon for it because it 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 makes (laughs) probably the main audience feel very nostalgic for their own uh young teen years they took a huge risk, I think, in making this show. Like I said, on paper, this shouldn't work. And on film, this theoretically shouldn't work. It's weird to watch 20-something women um, pretending to be 13. Uh, but they have found a way to ground it. And and as, as um, impossible as that might seem. And, and I don't want people to forget about it. Um, I think they got a little waylaid by the pandemic. They released the first seven episodes of season two um, quite a while ago. And the, and, and because one of the, one of the episodes in the back half of season two is so involved, I believe it's was supposed to be at a bar mitzvah. There's really no way to do a social distance bar mitzvah. Um, So it's, it's, you know, Fans have been waiting to see more of the show. But in the meantime, uh, I think Pen15 for your consideration in all categories, specifically, you know, series, uh, both actresses and and definitely writing it because it like it's it truly is a marvel. Next week, we're going to talk about the nature of comedy and the nature of drama. 
But, you know, I think Pen15 is a great example of a show that has dramatic stakes while still being just stupidly funny. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I don't want people to forget it. And I don't want people to forget those performances. Uh, I kind of people, I kind of wish people talked more about their performances in the vein of kind of the way that, you know, uh, Oscar buzz gets wrapped around people who do like big physical transformations, right? Because I don't remember if it was me or you who actually talked to them about this, but one of us talked to them about like the sheer energy and pliability of what's required to be that age when you just have that like insane level of excitement over seeing your friend that you're just going to be like tackling them in the backyard or jumping on their back or running around the house at, you know, breakneck speeds, which, you know, once you reach 25, 30, 35, that's gone. Like you don't have that anymore. And it actively feels dangerous and weird and awkward to do that. And not only do they get all of that up time and time again, take after take after take after take, they're able to do it convincingly in such a way that it's like, no, 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 that's exactly who they are. So like it, it's, it's bringing all of the physical elements that are demanding of, of, you know, acting into a role without drawing attention, attention to them. So we should be drawing attention to them. We should be saying, yeah, look at all the shit. Right. They did. I would talk about Lance Reddick on corporate. I feel like maybe just maybe Steve Green, the recommendation machine, has come on this very podcast and talked about corporate before. Um, but one of the things that I realized when I was building out the Emmy prediction pages uh, throughout the last couple of months was that the last season of corporate is technically still eligible for this year's Emmys because it premiered in the summer of 2020 um, and then just kind of fell off the face of the earth. And uh, again, uh, pretending that, that my voice has any sort of sway or uh, importance to it, mentioning that show and mentioning its eligibility seems doubly important considering uh, so many of the Comedy Central series have ended up on Paramount Plus, which is very, very nice because all of a sudden uh, the cord cutters who couldn't access these shows geared directly toward their generation or toward their sense of humor now have a clear and easy access point, maybe even can use a free trial to binge through a bunch of great, great Comedy Central shows like Detroiters, which I know we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, but one problem with corporate is that the third season, the one that is eligible for the Emmys, is not available on Paramount+. Oh, Plus. Uh, it is only streaming on ComedyCentral.com, as far as I can tell. I think you can buy it in other places, but who does that? Um, so this is your reminder. Corporate is a magnificent show. And Lance Reddick's role as Christian DeVille, the kind of um, stately CEO of a company that owns everything and does anything to make a buck. Um, it's just kind of amazing how you can both respect and revile this man while still being completely entranced by his kind of personal shenanigans and the way that they have allowed Reddick, a, a guy who, you know, a lot of people know from Bosch or the wire or, you know, otherwise kind of playing a very stoic bossy, uh, you know, robot like police Godzilla officer versus Kong. <laughs> the John Wick films. Oh, well, that's true. He has, he does show a little more, of his uh, joie de vivre and John Wick, which is great, but um, not enough Reddick and Godzilla, Godzilla v Kong. 
thought that was a euphemism for a second. There's really not enough rhetoric in most things, but I will say there is plenty of rhetoric in corporate and you should all make sure that you appreciate him uh, and give him his due. Again, Steve Green, The Recommendation Machine has done a number of great interviews about corporate uh, as a show and specifically for Lance Reddick uh, as an actor. And I would encourage everyone to seek those out as well as find the show however you can. It's a uh, very smart, very enjoyable comedy. Libby, do you have one more comedy person or should we move on to i do but i'm gonna batch it because i'm so let me make my pitch for the women of apple tv comedies i think it could be easy for some people to overlook the 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 stellar performances being delivered um specifically by charlotte mcnab charlotte mcdow in mythic quest uh and Obviously, we spoke to them last week, um, and they are just as delightful as they seem. Uh, Hannah Waddingham and Juno Temple from Ted Lasso. I don't know why it feels like they could get overlooked. Uh, Ted Lasso, I think, reads as a pretty mask show. Um, it is about football and an all-male football team uh, with its all-male coaching staff. And then there is this beautiful story about about a friendship between two women, like, nestled in there. And it's delightful and it's lovely. And I would hate for that to get lost in in the shuffle of the Emmy nominations. As for Nick Dow, she's amazing. I, I get I hate saying this, but Poppy is not a character we see all the time on TV. Um, she's dorky and she's awkward but she's also very driven and she can be narcissistic and single-minded and selfish while always thinking she's the best person and that is very real to me that is a very real archetype that that we don't see a lot of the time you don't often see the uh self-delusions alongside the sort of uh single-mindedness so She's just a very complex and entertaining character and um, dinner party. So it's also really nice to watch a character like that who, you know, we're repeatedly told is, you know, one of the best engineers in the business and one of the smartest people that they've ever met who isn't like undermined by being, you know, the, the doofy office worker who can't send an email or something, you know, like, uh, right her personality comes from so many different facets within her. And one of my favorite parts of season two and honestly, season one was watching her kind of force an idea through that she believed in and she knew was possible. And then having the, the kind of extraneous characters, the extra people kind of show up uh, and tell her that she couldn't do it and that she was wrong. And then she just kept working toward that and eventually, you know, spoiler alerts, I mean, she achieves it just in a new form. Like she achieves it through collaboration, through teamwork, really emphasizing the, the ensemble of Mythic Quest and how important, you know, your coworkers are, but also how important that individual voice inside of you is uh, that's telling you there's something here, uh, which again, comes up repeatedly in season two of Mythic Quest. Uh, they're very on theme. They know what they're doing. And we'll talk more about that, I think, next week as well. Superstore. All right, Ben. Yes. Ben, 30 seconds on Superstore. <laughs> Uh, Superstore is great. It's over. 
you just have to give it its due. Like it's been one of the best sitcoms. It has a huge fan base for a reason. They've done really innovative things on broadcast. Uh, Nico Santos probably has the best chance of getting into that supporting actor category and he absolutely deserves it, but don't forget about everybody else. It's, it's an elite office comedy. Yeah. And it was one of the few shows on TV that were, was really uh, tapped into a different class of lifestyle that, that a lot of people aren't familiar with but even more people are familiar with mm-hmm. um so uh yeah i r.i.p that show i'm i'm still not over the loss and yeah superstar for everything uh well let's move on to variety and talk series yeah. obviously we have an interview coming up with seth myers but is there any other uh contender that isn't sort of a lock uh for awards recognition that you want to sort of shout out I mean, my read on this on this race this year tends leads me to think that most of the shows aren't going to be nominated. Like one of the more frustrating things, and Libby can kind of speak to the details of this a little bit more because she covered it uh, as it happened. Um, but when they tried to make a rule change in this uh, variety talk variety sketch category by combining the two into one category, like they did all the way up through I think 2014. Um, they rightfully got rid of that. They canceled it. They got a lot of backlash for it and they went back to keeping the categories separate, which is the right decision, but their efforts needed to be focused more on either breaking down the variety talk category further or otherwise finding ways to highlight shows that are really doing different things. Like, uh, it looks like we're going to see a lot of the same nominees this year and we're also getting just like last year, one nominee less than we were getting before other rules changes without getting too far in the weeds. We used to have six nominees. We had five last year. We're going to have five again this year. Uh, That doesn't seem like enough when you're looking at shows like last week tonight with John Oliver, which is weekly. And you're pitting that against a Seth Meyers, which is nightly, which is on broadcast, which has guests, which has like all of these different kind of structural elements to it that make it, um, not a more challenging show to create and not a completely different genre, but something that's, you know, separate enough that pitting them against each other doesn't really make a lot of sense. You're asking people to choose. I mean, it's always difficult to ask people to choose to pit art against art or to pit creativity against creativity. Uh, But when you are trying to ask them to do that, you need to try to make it as fair as possible. And this is one of the problems. So all that being said, uh, I think, you know, Desus and Miro, oh, Conan, God, yeah. uh, Seth, like all of those great shows are probably going to be left out again this year. All those shows absolutely deserve to have kind of the stamp of approval from an organization like the Emmys. Um, and, you know, Colbert's not going anywhere. Uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's not going anywhere. Like those guys are doing great. They're fine. I would much rather see the voters focus on shows that really need the benefit. And, you know, I think Deces and Miro's doing fine too, honestly, but like, it's still, you know, there's pressure on it as a, as a Showtime series, as a premium offering, like it needs to deliver things and it's been doing it on their end. So let's give it, you know, the attention and credit and all the rest of it. So I, I, that would be my pick. That would be, Probably I mean, at, at, the at the risk of shifting from, you know, uh, advocating to analytics or analytical, the pandemic obviously shifted the way all these shows operated. 
And I think some shows were able to use that to their advantage. I think two shows you mentioned definitely, definitely did that in uh, Seth and, and Desus and Mero. And I just wonder if like there, if there's any points given for what they did, as opposed to like, what say Jimmy Kimmel or, or, or Fallon or, or Colbert did. I don't think so. I don't think there's extra points given. Uh, there's no way to tell how much television Emmy voters are watching. It's it's and it it blows my mind because actually Leo, I'm going to have you talk about Seth uh, in a, in a minute. But Desus and Mero, I honestly think fared better than anyone else uh, through the pandemic because they had each other. This is another thing where uh, you know you have that built-in chemistry, you have that long-lasting relationship, and they know how to talk to each other, which makes up for a lot when they don't have another person in their space to talk to. Um, you can coast on that. And they didn't just coast on that. They they really tried to be something that people could depend on, that people could look forward to. And, and it was just such a happy place to visit. But Leo and I, we get into this with in Seth's interview, but can you talk a little bit about why you think he fared the pandemic so well? So I think of all what I would say is like the uh, you know, the original four late night comedy shows. The networks, yeah. The ne- yeah, the, the network comedy, sh- late night comedy shows. Seth Meyers was the show that used the opportunity to change what it was doing the most. I think we talked we talked about this the entire pandemic. We talked about the Emmys being able to, hey, maybe change what you're doing because now it's an opportunity to change because this is giving you this time and everyone would understand if you switch something now. We said the same thing with the Oscars. Like, hey, sh- shift it, change it. People will understand if it's bad. They kind of did, but it was bad for another reason. It's the, it's the idea that didn't change enough or the right things. But Seth and his staff took an opportunity to like, A, react to the pandemic in real time, have him do the show from an attic crawl space from his in-laws basement. And like, then add these, like, they like layered the show with so many inside jokes that the show almost changed what it was. I mean, a closer look was almost was always like his most watched thing. But even that became a different animal during during quarantine and during during the pandemic, because it was all about, hey, are you looking over his shoulder to see which the what the Thornbirds titles are right now? And like they're not even calling it out. It's just like it's happening over his shoulder. And the and the the book the book jackets are changing and they're new jokes. And I just don't think any other show and that's a small example, but like it did that across the board. And I wish other shows had taken similar sort of sort of chances. Yeah. And we talk about it in the interview with Seth where he, he says he, he might mourn the return of a of an audience because it, it means that that the constant callbacks kind of have to go away because you don't know the audience being, you know, rushed into 30 Rock. They're not going to they haven't watched last night's episode potentially. But yeah, I, I do think that for, for my money, Seth Meyers was able of the original network shows to sort of alter what he was doing in a way that made the show a stronger comedic show. And I think it would be great if he was rewarded for that, if they were rewarded for that, just because it would make taking chances like that better moving forward. Well said. Yeah. And now, speaking of Late Night with Seth Meyers, guess what? Stephen Colbert. Just kidding. It's Seth Meyers. <laughs> Here's our interview with Seth Myers. Uh, we went long, but only because we were having so much fun talking. <laughs> 
Well, Seth, thank you so much for being here on Millions of Screens. Uh, Libby had a chance to talk to you last year a little bit about, you know, from home, uh, late night from home. But um, we wanted to say that we had Amber on a few weeks ago. So what's it like to follow in her footsteps for once? You know, it's nice. It's more than fair. And I would agree that it's about time. Speaking of time, I did dawn on me when I saw your faces. Oh, right. We did this via zoom last year uh which was a, a slightly haunting moment but uh, it is nice to uh, see your faces albeit uh, virtually no i think most people have that same reaction when they when they see us even if they haven't done it before it's like this is a little disconcerting this is a lot hey 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 but yeah, yeah. I, actually i was thinking about that this morning i was like what are we going to ask him oh we can talk about the pandemic and i was like jesus that's what we talked about last year like what the <laughs> fuck are we doing i mean i guess well we're when we spoke last time was I in the attic? Yeah. yeah. Well, you had transitioned to uh, your, your parents. In-laws house. Yeah, in-laws yeah, house. Okay, uh, so, so I have moved around a fair amount. At least I'm back home in a studio. Yes. That's very true. Uh, that actually leads perfectly into one of the questions I had, which is closer look and, and generally like all the inside jokes have sort of built out over the course of, you know, being quarantined. Is that something that just happened naturally because it's, it's having these callbacks constantly come up, whether it's something like the Thornbird, Sea Captain, and now even in studio where you have Ocean Master, you're using Wally, utilizing Wally more, uh, secret tiny whispers or tiny secret whispers, however you choose to say it. <laughs> <laughs> is there something about writing remotely that has led to callbacks being a constant now in, in the process? Well, I think the main thing, and I've thought about this a lot too, because it kind of started happening, happening naturally, is... I think most people who watch a late night talk show watch it more often than not. You know, they're kind of return customers. And certainly our crew, which is our only in-studio audience, they're there every night. And so the only time when you do a talk show where you have people who probably didn't see last night's show is when you have a live studio audience. Because a lot of times those are people who maybe just want to go see a talk show and, and they have fun. But there's a huge risk if you call back a Monday joke in a Tuesday show for a live studio audience that it will fall flat. And which is not particularly, I don't know if fair is the right word, but it would probably work for the people at home. So weirdly by taking out a studio audience, I think that's what allows you to sort of build in these infrastructures of, of recurring jokes and callbacks. And I think part of it too, you know, you mentioned the Thornbirds, like the Thornbirds just came about because a bunch of people commented to me about it being in the bookshelf. I didn't even know it was on the bookshelf behind me. And I don't know if it was that I paid more attention to comments during that time where I didn't have a studio audience because there wasn't any like feedback from a live audience. But so much of this past 15 months has been bits that have borne out of engagement with our at-home audience. And I, I've said this before, but I feel like so much closer to them um, because there's nobody else. Like I knew I was doing the show for them, but now it it just kind of hammers home exactly how much uh, that's the case. Is that where something like corrections comes out of? It's just like we're we're hearing we're hearing the feedback, and you kind of get to throw shoemaker under the bus a little bit. Yeah, I mean corrections. I think corrections started. The first one was it was a either Lego bricks because I called it Legos, and a bunch of people unloaded on me. Or there's that Mad Max character, the Duff Warrior. That I said doof, and I heard a lot about that. And so we just then, in the body of the show, kind of went through my thought process of, of how I got it wrong and trying to get it right. And the reality was, we just really enjoyed it. And so then 
corrections was a, the way to do it, where instead of it being like two or three minutes in the show, it could just be like 10 to 15 minutes a week. <laughs> I spend more time. We film it at the end of our show on Thursday. I spent more time working on corrections today than anything else. That's I mean, that that's how you're going to learn. I mean, you're not going <laughs> to learn otherwise unless you really uh, dig into your mistakes. That's 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 what I found, I think. Um, but it's really fun. It's weirdly become like it's like stand up. If again, it was the same audience every night because it's like, oh, I'll, I'll do a bit about this. I'll do a bit about that. But also you can kind of call back not just things from earlier in that one, but ones from previous weeks ago. So it's been it's also the only thing I do entirely siloed off from the rest of the staff. So there's nothing I do on the show that Shoemaker hasn't seen ahead of time except for corrections. Oh my so God. the delight more than anything else is trying to uh, surprise him. It sounds a lot like when you're a kid and your family is your captive audience. So, you know, you can inject those bits and uh, that's how you get screamed at. But uh, yeah, that's yeah. no, not actually my parents weren't around. But it is true. That. They're captive. I will say for any stand up, try to get a room full of people uh, you employ. They because you you can't believe how good stuff will, will go. <laughs> well, I mean, and I know we talked about this a little last year. What was that adjustment like to going from a room full of people who uh, were there specifically to laugh at you to, you know, it's just you yourself in a room talking to yourself um was it a bit of I mean, a that line? was the hard i mean the hardest part was doing to be honest was just figuring out the technical aspects of it right, right. Like, i got used to doing it alone fairly quickly and it certainly helped that everybody was doing it not just people with television shows people with any job where they used to go someplace was at home and so i think there was a real patience from the audience as we sort of jankly figured it all out but it was so great to come back here because even going you go from 180 people to zero people and then you come back to 12 people 12 it feels like the hollywood bowl like you can't believe how great 12 feel and i will say that when i came back i told you know september now i said to the crew uh, please don't laugh. Like, I don't want you guys to feel as though you have to make up for the fact that there used to be an audience here. And so uh, when they do laugh, uh, which, you know, is not particularly often, at least I know it's uh, genuine and it's a nice way to, <laughs> to not feel as though they're doing it out of an obligation. I hear lots of laughs. Like when I watch it, like it's obviously not mic'd the way an audience would, but they're they're giving it to you. And like maybe you employ some laugh sluts, but that's okay. Every office needs some laugh sluts. We um, don't, I don't know. We have like one cameraman who's pretty friendly with a laugh. I will say we got one. I, what I want to do is uh, at some point, right. When this is about to end, I'll, I'll ask our audience if they, I'll put up, I'll post like 12 headshots and I'll say, which laugh do you think belongs to each of these people? Having watched the show now for eight months with just them. Yes. I love it. I do. I do enjoy, especially in corrections when Amber's just waiting to take over the stage, you can hear her, her laugh <laughs> very clearly pronounced. It's a great, it's really great how specific her laugh is. And it's also, I mean, she is by far the most captive in that we then end the show with good nights, which she is there for to remind people to watch her show on Peacock. And it's, it makes me so happy that there's no clock on me. And I just know that Amber, who, by the way, has to do a show the next day, 
uh, has to just wait for me to finish <laughs> my navel gazing. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, Leo, I know you, you have questions about this, but uh, we love all the people you work with. And it's not like we brought you here to just talk about the great, you know, connections you have to so many talented people, but, but you've gotten into producing. Yeah. I'm not gotten into, but like you're producing some of the best shows on TV. Like what does that do for you that, that maybe uh, late night doesn't. Shoemaker would say the same thing. Our plan, as far as having a production arm for a show like this was just to try to create space for people that were one talented and two self-starters. The thing about Amber's show is we knew if Amber and Jenny started a show based on what we saw from them here and the way they were self-starters on our show, they would be immediately thriving if given that opportunity. So whereas Shoemaker does go every Friday and he's in studio when they're shooting, I don't have any sort of day-to-day involvement with Amber's show, which is not out of a laziness or a, you know, a lack of caring. It's just total confidence that she can do it. It's the same way with AP Bio that you know, Mike O'Brien is the kind of guy that we knew from working with at SNL who would not need any help from us at all. So basically the role we serve is to vouch for him. And, and if there's ever a time that we can help on a network level, but you know, they're such pros and they figure out the network politics of it pretty quickly as well. So they don't really need our help that much. Well, I wanted to ask about AP Bio a little bit, just because uh, it really did strike me that when it moved to Peacock in season three, they went after some stuff. Like they had some episodes that I, I don't know if they, if it's fair to say they couldn't have done it on NBC, but they, they definitely uh, were a little more experimental and a little more challenging in ways that I really, really adored. And I didn't know, like, you know, one was where were you helpful in making that transition and kind of convincing Peacock that this was something worth pursuing. And then two, like, when do you get to react to those episodes? Like, are you seeing the scripts and reading them? Or are you just watching them as they come along? Like, when do you kind of get to appreciate the support and space you've given this guy and being like, oh, good. He created something amazing. Like, this is so great. I like, I'm glad I helped with this. I, I will say it's the, basically we get the scripts and Shoemaker and I read them and more than anything else, we just text jokes we love back and forth. <laughs> and we'll text <laughs> O'Brien to say this killed me. I, there's never been a time where I have said um, the kind of note that anyone in television, particularly in comedy, I'm sure, hates the most which is something along the lines of that didn't land for me i never it's never that it's only this are the great parts and it was really cool because i do think the show gets super not super more experimental in a way that never really caused concern like i think to peacock's credit they realized it was a little different and to mike's credit he didn't fully take advantage of the fact that there was less of a network sense or less of a you know, the oversight was maybe not as as network um, centric. And so he just made the show. He just like used the space to to make it a little richer and and the scope a little wider. And to Peacock's credit, they were they were on board with it as well. And I can tell you, though, uh, it continues even more so uh, in this next season, which is just wonderful. That's great. Yeah. I, I just, I can't even imagine reading the kind of the script for the previously on episode where it's just like constant 
flashbacks building up to, and then the next, it just immediately transitions into next on it. It was amazing to watch. And uh, I'm very excited to see stuff coming. It's so, future, I mean, so. that is the perfect example of, I mean, as good a television episode of comedy as there was last year. It was, And yeah. it's funny because, you know, when you read, especially a sitcom where you've read every episode, you kind of learn the voice of the writer. And I will admit there are times where you, you kind of start reading it the way you watch it, which is it's not quite work. You're kind of just like absorbing. And that one though, previously on, like all of a sudden I was like on page seven and I was like, I think I have to start over. <laughs> because this is, this is weirdly become a tenant situation for me where I'm not quite sure I follow what's happening. Um, I want to talk briefly about your show budget. Just because, uh, yeah, can, can, you. can you can you just send Jermaine <laughs> or Seth Reese, just to name a few of my former coworkers, can you send them on sabbatical for a couple of weeks so that Wally can talk more and or so you can buy, you know, you can't touch this? This will be discussed at length today. Okay. A closer look. Yeah. We're going to try <laughs> to hopefully resolve our issues with Wally. Also, Wally literally did just tell us the other day he bought a new car. And we couldn't decide if he was telling us to brag about all the money we'd previously given him for his lines or to let us know, keep it coming, guys. Yeah. Or else the repo yeah. man is going to come, is going to show up. Uh, also, this question, this question might answer itself, but how could you afford uh, K-Fed's Popozal uh, last year, but you can't afford MC Hammer this year? Uh, Popozal, uh, turns out, Whoever owns the publishing on that was pretty happy to, to get it out there. I think they were hoping that it would maybe have a second act. I don't think it did. We, we kept our eyes on the iTunes charts, but there was very little. It, it didn't have one of those little green arrows next to it uh, to signify any growth. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't climbing the charts after uh, showing up on, on Late Night. No. And that was I don't Sal. Think it's, it's... Sal was the person who put in Popo's out. And then it should, we, like, the, most, the dumbest part of our daily Closer Look call is the deep dives we end up doing about a stupid thing we put in. And we have this uh, absolutely essential and fantastic producer on Closer Look named Emily Arotis. And she, the, the, the amount, even on Zoom, and I'm very impressed by this, the amount she can roll her eyes uh, with impatience while we read the lyrics of Popo's out of one another. Also, she's younger and more often than not, she it will tell us, I don't know what you're talking about and I don't particularly care. I would love to lock down what the graphics are going to be. Especially with a lot of the references you've been hitting lately that are sort of aimed at the at the 50-year-old man. No, 50 Emily loves MASH. Okay. She always has. <laughs> well, everybody she got, does, She yeah. loves MASH. Loves yeah. the huge, huge rate. As she, said, she told us in high school, her Raider O'Reilly all over her locker. When we were creating this questions list late last night, uh, Lee and I were both in the document, and I think we almost wrote this question simultaneously. Okay. But uh, I think we have to talk about your impressions. Okay. Oh, and uh, I know that Leo is is here for Vince Vaughn and is okay. is, is wondering if he if and when he's coming back. And I personally um, am so. I'm so into the Mark Lindell impression and I hope that runner never stops. Um, mm -hmm. So have you, have you gotten more into impressions? Like, do you really worry about it? Oh, Leo, what are you asking? Well, I have to say it's crazy. We wrote the question before you, I saw last night's show. Oh yeah. We did everybody last and night. And then, and then you did, you, as you said, it's the NFT of your, of your impressions. Like yeah. you did, you did 
everyone that we sort of want to talk about last night. Yeah, it was it was like uh, one of those John uh, Leguizamo shows where he does everybody. That's how I felt last night. I was exhausted at the end of last night. It is one of the great artistic journeys. I know that sounds I, I think we know we're talking about a dumb thing. So I know that's not the right term. But when I was at SNL, I got so tight anytime I had to do an impression. I worked on it way too much. I watched way too much tape. And I don't think there was ever any joy when I would do it. I think sometimes I could do one that was fine. And if there was a good joke, you know, if it was written to be funny, I could say the words and, and get a laugh. I now put no thought into these impressions at all. Like I didn't, until I started talking. And again, I, I hear the criticisms of the Vince Vaughn impression, but I also want to stress no thought goes into it. <laughs> other than the fact that I love Vince Vaughn and I'm very happy when I talk like him. So that has been the joy of this is, you know, having come from a place where when you do an impression, there's a wig and there's wardrobe and there's makeup and there's all these things that make you think it has to be a professional impression. Whereas now it's just uh, the freedom to be very stupid. And it's a lot of a lot of fun. Right. Like, Leo, does that satisfy? Like, I feel satisfied. I had no notes on Vince Vaughn. I am here for Vince Vaughn. Oh, I am yeah. not one of the people giving giving Seth any guff on his Vince Vaughn impression. We do every now and then post a, a Twitter poll. And more often than not, it turns out maybe the haters are a little louder online. Oh, and yeah. that when yeah. when, oh, when people really? are allowed to give votes you know, <laughs> oh. in, uh, in private, in the sanctity of the voting booth on Twitter, more more often than not, people are people are on board. I hadn't. I I. Yeah, that's see, there you go. As writers on the internet, I'm unfamiliar with this uh, with this line <laughs> of thinking. The one um, thing I'll say that we were talking the other day because we don't, we genuinely don't miss Donald Trump, but we do love when his sort of secondary cast of characters uh, sort of pops their head up. Like we, we are, um, we can, we sort of have a bottomless pit of delight with the machinations of, of Rudy Giuliani and, and Mike Lindell. So um, when people are like, do you miss Trump? It's like, no, no, no. But when his old friends stop by, we don't mind. Well, Luckily, there's you. been plenty. There has. I think it's going to be a long tail. Yeah. At least we have something to look forward to. Um, okay, this is very insular. Leo, I'm yeah. very sorry, because this is not a very good question. And I just want to apologize in advance. Can you explain Cicada's to people who grew up with annual cicadas like mm -hmm. the east coast is freaking out and i have no idea because i was seeing those cicada shells all over south dakota ben was that your experience and oh yeah every year yeah yeah and leo we don't talk about florida so where <laughs> wait where were you from ben that you had seasonals uh i'm from a very small town in illinois called odell uh okay. so just two hours south of chicago gotcha because i yeah I mean, I only will say this. My understanding of uh, cicadas has always been 17 years underground, two weeks out. And I still don't know if I've ever seen one anywhere. I don't think I've ever been any place where I've gotten to enjoy the cicada experience. But I, just I mean, congratulations I to you guys. I feel like you guys, I mean, for you, that's like if you get a birthday every month, right? Uh, I, yeah, well, we did. <laughs> We did something was, like that. Was, you know. Yeah. 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 And uh, the fun part was when visitors would come by and they'd hear the cicadas overnight and they would freak out. They're from like big cities or whatever. And they'd be like, what the 
fuck is that? And I'd have to be like, I don't know. That's what I didn't notice it. Did you, did you then go out and walk around until you found a desiccated husk of their old selves? Uh, uh, I'd see them. I'd garage. show them out in the morning, but uh, they didn't want to do it while it was weird. happening. They were freaked out. That's, that's very, you guys strange. didn't know you, you took for granted this wonderful, right. this exactly. wonderful moment of nature. Exactly. Thank you for joining us for cicada talk. <laughs> Uh, Look, I mean, again, I this the cicadas is very good for me. As you guys know, I have a Broadway show that has previewed yep. already out of town. So excited. Uh, cicada Cicada. So and we're very, I mean, we're very excited about the casting. We'll be talking about that tonight on the show as well. Oh, um, wow, I didn't realize there were new developments. Yeah. Shit. Again, uh, Bayes wrote the joke in yesterday that, <laughs> like, I can't remember the exact wording of it. Uh, Something along the lines of like, look, we have no reason. Oh, I think it was. We've had no reason, <laughs> literally no reason to talk about wedding crashers. And then he pointed out, no, the reason is there's nobody here to tell us not to. <laughs> so we do that. A lot of our show now is that, that there's no stop gaps of. Because, uh, again, it's, people always say, do you miss laughs? And I'm uh, across the board. I'm like, yes, of course. But I don't miss them as much as uh, how much I hated hearing a joke not work like now the baseline is they all don't work which is the best but that's such that's such freedom that's it uh, is freedom it's yeah. it is i know it's a weird thing to say but uh i mean i think a lot of people have probably found uh on top of like the fear and trepidation and loneliness of this year that you know there has been some sort of liberation in work um just because you're out of the structures that you're so used to uh, is your favorite Billy Joel song really Vienna or did one of yeah. your writers put that in your mouth? Bayes wrote it. Bayes is our Billy Joel guy. Yeah. But I back him up on that. Okay. So I did, but I will say that it was, he put it in and when he put it in, I was like, you're right. Uh, I'm an all for Lena Stan as okay. it were, but also uh, you may be right is sort of my, my wife and I song. So that those are my, those are my Billy Joel. I will fans. say, uh, I don't know what the consensus is on uh, scenes from an Italian restaurant, but I do remember that as a young, as a kid, that was by far my favorite, just because I enjoyed the sort of storytelling of that song. It's, it's his day in the life. Absolutely. Well yeah. said. If, if, if there were a Billy Joel day in the life, it's scenes from an Italian <laughs> restaurant. I really did not think we were going to go there in this podcast uh seth it's been so it's been over a year since libby and you last chatted uh and since then we had a contested election uh a failed insurrection and now we're again being held hostage by mcconnell and in some respects mansion not sure if there's a question here at all but how are you doing how are we doing as a country uh what is it like sort of dive into this stuff sort of on a on a weekly if not daily basis well, it's a tricky question. I mean, I will tell you that for myself personally, you know, when things are bad, I, that's when I feel the most lucky to have this gig and to be able to work with the people that I work with, because it is very cathartic to write about this stuff the way we write about it. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've built in more and more space to be tangential and silly as a reminder that, you know, we do want to talk about serious things, but we also want people to enjoy it. And we are of the mind that if we enjoy doing it, hopefully people enjoy watching it. And so I, I want to appreciate having the show and I, I 
especially appreciate that people watch it enough so that it doesn't just feel like muttering to yourself on the street. Well Last said. question. Last question. Do you have a timeline for bringing the studio audiences back? I would say right now, not uh, probably not before September. Um, we have a, a, a sort of weird summer schedule because of the Olympics um, as right. well. So our weeks off are, are not what we're used to. And I think because we were really lucky being directly above Fallon yeah. in that we can kind of see how it goes for them, not just with what it's like to have audiences back, but you know, there are still going to be protocols for bringing an audience in and how they get them into the building. And as a, so we didn't really want to throw two studio audiences a day at oh, the building. Yeah. And again, I don't, I mean, I'm sure once they come back, I'll be happy, but I will also, I, I think it will be hard not to mourn at least in the run up to it, the ending yeah. of this chapter, particularly as we all feel a little bit safer and feel like maybe we made it through you know, the hard part, of course, was, you know, oh, it's fun to do a show in an attic, but also I'm terrified all the time when I go to a grocery store. Like now that that part's over, it can kind of be a little bit more light and we are we are enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much well. for being here, Seth. Yes. Uh, we got to let thank you go. Thank you, guys. But it it, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, there was our interview with Seth. I thought it went well. Uh Libby, you were astute to point out that while we were advocating for things earlier, I did not mention breeders once. It's a real I'm failure sorry. in form, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you... would you say that nobody asked what you nobody even to... asked <laughs> what you wanted Almost to advocate like... for? Not that anybody asked. Not that anyone asked. But yes, you like breeders. I kind of like breeders. Yeah, I mean, for a hot second there, it was the best comedy on television. We learn a lot about each other here. Uh, and now we know Leo likes breeders. Uh, but yes, I do like breeders. Uh, I don't know, Ben, you're the prognosticator. You can tell me how long a shot it is. But I think uh, the dark comedy from the minds of <laughs> Martin Freeman, Chris Addison, and Simon Blackwell uh, deserves to get some attention. I think Martin Freeman deserves attention uh, in lead. Uh, I think additionally, Daisy Haggard, if, if, if there's space, I don't know how crowded these comedy categories are. I think Freeman's probably got a decent shot. He's probably in like the top. He's definitely in the top 10. So uh, he could, he could get in there. But yeah. It's my, it's my favorite comedy going. I hope there's room for it. I hope it just gets whatever, whatever attention it gets is good. Millions of Screens, the production of the Penske Media Corporation, anywhere our theme YouTube music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork Talking About TV, Emily Wonk on the Chocolate Factory. Our editor in chief is Dan Harris Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue. Some of our favorite shows streaming on Paramount Plus that you could also maybe watch on ComedyCentral.com are Detroiters, Corporate, and Reno 911. Millions of Screens strongly endorses Strangers with Candy, where Jerry Blank. As noted earlier, not a teenager. is not a teenager. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. You can find us on Twitter at Million Screens at Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travis, and Leo Nigger You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, so leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you as always they shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>